to see all of you, because when we first started worship, there was like five of you. So I always kind of have this like, if you build it, they will come mentality. If you start playing worship, they will come. And uh, it worked out. All right. I'm Matthew, if you don't know me. I am part of Jay's community group, but he's been teaching me a little bit about uh, preaching, and uh, he's given me the opportunity to share while he's away this week. And I just want to say thank you. Thank you to all of you for giving me this opportunity. I know it's a huge investment in me as a leader and as a, as a teacher. And um, I just want to acknowledge that. Thank you. It's my pleasure to do this, and I'm thrilled to, to have this opportunity. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about Galatians. Um, and we've been doing this for several weeks. The major theme of Galatians is freedom, the way of freedom. It's all about freedom. And... <clears throat> What's funny about this is the truth is I did not want to preach in this sermon series. I didn't want to because in the three weeks I had a new kid, Raphael right there. I had, (laughs) thank you, I started a second job and I um, moved in three weeks. So I'm a little busy, I'm a little tired, that's putting it mildly. Um... And I just wanted to sleep, honestly. Um, but as I listened to people uh, talk about Galatians and, and how Jesus was working through Galatians in, in my heart, I just I felt like I could not pass it up. I had to preach. I no longer had a choice. So it's kind of ironic that it's a message about freedom, but I was sort of forced to do this by the Holy Spirit. But that's not really... That's not really Um, a good way to look at it, because true freedom is the ability to obey obey God, and we're going to discuss that this morning. And, uh, you know, the idea of freedom is very special to me. I think that's ultimately why I I had to share this morning. See, God has spoken over me um, some things, and and I won't go into that now, but it just, he's spoken to me and told me that freedom and helping people get free is, is what I'm made to do. And I'm still figuring that out, still trying to walk that out. But um, I, I think ultimately that's why I had to share this morning, because this is part of my calling, to help people walk into freedom. So before we jump into this morning's passage, I want to talk about freedom a little bit. We've been talking about it for several weeks, and I don't feel like we've had a discussion about what freedom is. So... We're going to talk about what biblical freedom is, but I want to talk about what American freedom is. What have we been told freedom is? Um, So what has our culture, either implicitly through stories and movies and and books and things like that, or explicitly told us that freedom, what have they told us that freedom is? It's not a rhetorical question, actually. As part of our discussion this morning, I want to know what you guys think about this. You can do what you want. You can say what you want, yes. You follow your heart. Yeah, it doesn't really matter if it conflicts with your freedom because it's their freedom that they're concerned about. So there's a lot, like individuality there, um, a lot of autonomy. All right. Yeah, it's like central to what it is to be an American. And... You know, freedom is a good thing, but I don't think that freedom described like this uh, really works out. But, uh, yeah, I mean, 
that's what, it's, what freedom is in America. You know, it is, it is the ability to do what you want when you want to. The ability to ignore your family and everyone else around you and watch TV wherever you want to, whether it's in your home or in, at the bus stop or at work. You know, that's freedom um, to us in America. And there's some problems with that, isn't there? What are some problems you see with that? Good. It's an illusion. It's not real. It's a lie. Yeah. How does that kind of like impact our relationships? We could be spending quality time with our family. Yeah. Yeah. It's not satisfying, so it causes more problems. I guess in some ways it, it encourages addiction. Um, so we're continually enslaved to this thing over and over again. It's great. I didn't even think of these things, so I think I'm impressed by your answers so far. So you said it encourages conflict because people have different definitions of freedom. I don't know if you guys can hear him, but yeah, he's talking about um, illegal illegal immigrants. They they feel like they've been here a while, they contributed, and now other people are saying, well, you're not actually free to be here. So there's differences in opinion about there. It's creating conflict. Carol? Yeah, it doesn't encourage relationships. So it helps us build, like, silos. Like, we are our own people over here. We have our opinion, and it is right. We shouldn't even talk to you, really, because your opinion is in direct conflict with our freedom. See, we are social creatures, and we were created to be social, to be in relationship, not to be autonomous and individuals. We were made to be dependent on God. See this in Genesis. When we were first created, we didn't really have to do much. It was just don't eat the one thing that we ate. Um, we aren't very good at being in control of ourselves. You know this. You've had extra birthday cake around, right? <laughs> Happy birthday, by the way. Um, you know, it, me and uh, my community group actually celebrated my birthday on Friday because it's going to be my birthday on Wednesday and I won't be there next week. Uh, so we had extra ice cream cake, and me and Jay are sitting there discussing how we're going to split this up. He wanted me to take all the cake because he didn't have any self-control, and I didn't want to take all the cake because I don't have any self-control because um, it's ice cream cake. Who does? Um, so we're, like, discussing this back and forth. I finally got him to take some because I didn't have any space in my freezer, which is true. It's very packed at the moment. But, yeah, and... <clears throat> And when we are, are free to do what we want when we want, we can quickly become enslaved to that. Anybody who's ever used Facebook knows this. Starts off with something really cool. Like, cool, I'm connected with all these people I love. I see what's going on in their life. And then pretty soon you're in the middle of a conversation with somebody and you're like, I just got to check this real quick, you know? And it gets weird and it starts affecting your relationships. And honestly, this is something I struggle with. I've taken something insignificant and silly and mildly fun and gave it a throne in my life to the point where it's affecting my relationships with my family and friends. Um, If I'm not good about this, if I'm not intentional about this, I just get sucked into my phone. And my wife wants to murder me, understandably. (laughs) Truth is, that doesn't kill anybody, but it does hurt relationships. But that's just a tiny example. When we look at at turning good things into little gods uh, in other arenas, it can get pretty scary pretty quickly. Look at sex, for instance. 
Sex is a beautiful, wonderful thing in the right um, circumstances, in the right scenario. But if you cultivate an attitude of doing what you want, when you want in this arena, some very serious implications occur. And I think we've cultivated this mentality in our culture. I know this because one in five women has had some sort of sexual abuse in their lifetime. That's a ridiculous number. And we didn't get there by accident. We get there because men and women place a higher value on what they want than on the, the value of another person. And that doesn't sound like freedom to me. So it's clear that true freedom is not doing whatever you want when you want to. And I'm going to steal a, an analogy to drive this home that I read in Christianity Today yesterday. A train is only free to do what it can do when it stays on the track. The moment it jumps the tracks, there's disastrous consequences. It can no longer do what it's made for. The same is true for us. But some people take this line of thinking and introduce another form of slavery. They get so wrapped up in following the tracks and following the rules and following the law that they enslave themselves to something else. Both of these approaches miss true freedom. And we're going to explore both of these approaches a little bit more in a few minutes. So what is true freedom? Let's turn to today's passage to find out. Now, we have a couple slides, I believe. Um, these, uh, to make sure that you have what we're talking about, look it up. It's page 18, it's Galatians 5, or not 18, 8, 12 in our Bibles. It's Galatians 5, 1 through 15. I'll give you a second to turn there. We do have a couple of slides. That's good. Thank you, Jimmy. You did a bomb. Um, Galatians 5, 1 15. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who sets, or lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to, to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ, and you have fallen from gra- away from grace. For, for through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the right, righteousness of which we hope. For in Christ Jesus neither in, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or, nor cir- uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. Are confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who's trying to... Th- the one who's throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I am speaking, if I am preaching circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for these agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Whoa. <clears throat> Shots fired. Oh. <laughs> you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. 
Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and the truth that it brings to our life. Help us to hear what you have to say about freedom this morning, about our own lives, and what you want us to free us from. What you, what you want to free us from. Just open our eyes with your Spirit, Lord. Speak to us this morning. Amen. So, in those days, there's people called Judaizers. We've been talking about these guys the entire time we've been in Galatians. And Paul is livid about their influence over the church of Galatia. He's somehow convinced these people, these Gentiles, to be more Jewish. To take up the traditions, the rules, the laws, the circumcision of the Jewish people. They claim that this is the real way to get to God. This is the only way to get to God. Now, the law was a really good thing for the Jews. It taught them a lot. It taught them what it meant to live life, how to live it, how to stay holy. That's huge and important. But ultimately, nobody was able to live up to it. So it became something to judge people by and not to save them. That's where Jesus comes in. But why did these Judaizers exist? Why couldn't they just wrap their heads around Jesus and the fact that he's all we need? They came from a belief system that is very, very structured, that is um, filled of do's and don'ts. And these do's and don'ts tell them who's in and who's out, who's a part of their community and who's not. And to illustrate this, I want to talk about the Jewish temple. Okay, so this section would be the world. This is a very crude drawing. It's a very crude drawing of the temple. Um, but uh, um, you'll see in a second how strict and how, how many rules there were, just even explaining the layout of the temple. We don't have to go into much more than that. So out here would be the world. So anything not in this box here. So this is the world. That's everyone, all Gentiles, all Jews that have fallen away. Here is um, a cool place called the Court of Gentiles. Which basically means if you wanted to go to the temple, if you're a God-fearing uh, Gentile, you can hang out here and visit the temple. It's pretty cool. But if you weren't a Jew, that's that's as far as you can go. You can't even get to the actual temple itself. But you couldn't do that if you're a woman either. This is the court of women. There, only Jewish women could get here. <laughs> Spelling, it's important. Uh, no, no autocorrect on the whiteboard, I guess. Um, so here is the court of Israel, which is misleading because it's really just for men. And then we get to the actual temple here. So it's both of these locations. Here's the holies. This is where um, they did sacrifices. So only priests could, could go here. 
Um, they would eat there. They would sacrifice to, to God there. They would do a lot in there. Um, and here is the Holy of Holies. This location, only one guy, the best priest out of all of them, only one guy could go in there once a year. And it was like so, they, they felt God's presence in there so much that they would actually tie a rope around you so that in case God killed you, they'd be able to pull your body out. So pretty intense religion, right? Just by the way their, their building is laid out, we can see that. And what, they, what they've set up for themselves is what we would call a bounded set. This is an anthropology term. You don't have to remember it. It's not going to be on any quiz. But it's really important. And we're going to discuss it real quick. Just give me a second. So a bounded set is basically a group, group of people that have a bunch of rules that let you know who's in and who's out. So here are the rules. They can be things like get circumcised, be a Jew, make sure you go to every church service, because there's some churches that have multiple services and they expect everyone to be there all the time, because if you're not, you're out here. But these are people, these little ugly dots. You guys are beautiful, but these dots are not. Um, or it could be something like always wear your best clothes you can't wear a t-shirt while preaching oops um, but you see like it's very clear you either in or out does that make sense to everybody bounded set okay good and that's basically what the Judaizers have seen they've seen this this congregation that follows a different kind of thinking, and they decided we're going to impose these rules on them. We're going to tell people who thought they were good with God that they now need to do all these extra things to actually be good with God. And that can have a pretty profound effect on people. In this case, disciple is anybody who just follows these rules. It doesn't matter what's going on in their heart. They don't actually have to be obedient. They can just be compliant. As long as they do that, they're safe and sound in here. However, Paul and healthy churches take their cues from Jesus. In Luke 15, we see the story of the prodigal son. Now, this is the third in a series of stories. And the reason that's important is that by the time we get to the third story, you basically forget the context in which he's telling these stories. And that context is he's actually talking to two different groups of people at the same time. He's talking to sinners... They might be Gentiles or just people who didn't get the memo on these rules or followed the rules. And he's talking to Pharisees, probably the most rule-obsessed people throughout all of history. So he's talking to these two groups, and he's telling them these stories. And then he gets to Luke 15, prodigal son story. It's the third one. It's the, mo- it's the deepest one. And it's really interesting because he's actually talking to both groups at the same time with the story. Both groups are actually personified in this story. And if you lose the context, you don't realize that's what he's doing. So you have the younger son, which are the sinners. And then you have the Pharisees as the older brother. Interest of time, I'm not going to read it, but I will summarize it for you. So there's two brothers. There is the younger brother and the older brother. 
The younger brother walks up to his dad one day and decides, I'm out of here. I want to go. So give me half your stuff because that's my inheritance. Basically, he, what he's telling him is drop dead. I can't wait for you to die to go live my life. So just give me your stuff now. I don't really want a relationship with you. What's interesting is that the older brother doesn't say anything at this point. He's probably there, and he's like, what? This is happening? Okay. And it says nothing. Um, so, yeah, basically the younger son's saying, I want you to die. I don't want anything to do with you. I just want your stuff. So not long after that, the younger son goes out into the world. He begins to squander everything. He squanders it on prostitutes. He's out of money. He ends up working for a pig farmer, which if you're a Jew, like that's a no-no. You're not even supposed to touch pigs. Um, and now he's considering even eating what the pigs are eating because he is that poor. So Jesus is trying to paint like the worst picture he can. This person spit in his father's face and now is doing something that's making him physically and spiritually filthy. Eventually, the son comes to his senses and decides he's going to go back to his father because he figures, you know what? Even my dad's servants live better than I, I do right now. I will go back, basically beg for my life, and say, look, please just let me serve you. I'll live in another house. I'll just be one of your hired servants. But while he's a long way off, apparently the father has been looking for him over and over again. He's been keeping his eye out. And this is really important because in that culture, when a son did what the younger son did, they would have broken a pot symbolizing the death of this kid. They would have basically had a ceremonial um, uh, burial for this guy because he was dead to them. And if they saw him come back, the village would have made that true. They would have killed him for what he did because what he did was so um, offensive. But apparently the father had been keeping his eye out and he runs to him before anybody else can get to him and starts kissing him. The son begins to plead for his life, but the, the father ignores that and says, let's party. You were once dead and lost, but now you are found and alive. And everyone's thrilled. They, they kill their biggest, baddest cow, have the best meal they can. But the older, field, or the older son was in the field, and he came near the house. He heard music and dancing, tries to figure out what's going on. The servant tells him, your, your brother's back, and we're celebrating. But he refused to do, to do so. And the father comes out to talk to him. He says, look, I've been serving you all of these years, and you've never even given me, given me a goat. I've never disobeyed your orders. I just want to party with my friends one time. See, he's, he's not any better in this scenario. He's been there watching his younger son do this to his father, not really speaking up against it. So kind of he's got this same mentality. He's just approaching it uh, very differently. He's approaching it with compliance. I don't think he's actually obeying the orders. I think he's complying with them so that he can get what he wants. He's not actually interested in a relationship with his father. He just wants what his father has. And then the father says, look, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But you had to be, celebrate and be glad because your, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. See, Jesus is explaining his grace, grace to both groups of people while he cha challenges the perspective of the Pharisees. 
He is more concerned about the direction of these pe- these people's lives than their outward appearances and the self-righteousness that they've cra- crafted for themselves. The younger brother is celebrated because he's repented and turned back to God. Because if you haven't picked it up, the father is God uh, in that story. But the older son misses the point and refuses to join in on the fun, even though he might actually be very close to what God originally intended for human beings with his behavior. His heart is completely in the wrong direction. He's actually pointed away from God. So what we're talking about here is actually called a centered set. It's organized very differently. Rather than organized by boundaries, like a bounded set, it is organized by its center. It's defined by its center. So in our center, we have Jesus. And there's people everywhere. And in a centered set, it's more about your direction, about your movement. Where are you? Where are you going? It's not about fitting in these rules. It's about, are you going towards Christ or are you not? So you could be a Mother Teresa and be right next to God. But if you turn your heart away from God, you need repentance. But you could be this guy who's very far away, and if you're pointing towards God, you're doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing. So this is the, the basically the mindset that we I think Jesus has. And I always hesitate to put thoughts into Jesus' head, but that's what I see when he lives his life. He's not so much concerned about your position because the Pharisees probably would be like right here. He's more concerned about where you're pointed. Are you pointed away from, your, away from him, in on yourself, or are you pointed towards him? And the cool thing about repentance is it literally means to turn. So where are you turned? And when you pr- repent, you turn back to God. Do you guys see the differences there in these models? All right. Um, so how do you think this might, this kind of thinking, this shift in thinking might impact our missions and how we interact with other people? Yeah, he's pleased with repentance no matter where you are. That's huge. Anybody else have any thoughts? Mom? Yeah, we don't need to have all the answers. And we don't even need to worry about their behavior so much as their heart. This is something that I learned very quickly um, when I became a Christian. I was more of the bounded set kind of thinking. I wanted rules. Um, They helped me justify justify myself, make make me feel good about myself. The problem is, is when I didn't live up to even my own rules, I was crushed by guilt. So Jesus steps in saves me, shows me that there's a new way that I can have grace and I don't have to live by those rules, but that he, he can do, he can free me. And I started immediately wanting to talk about God to my friends. And I learned very quickly that I couldn't even control myself, so how was I expected to control these people? So I remember talking with my dad one day. He's like, your friends curse a lot. Like, you should probably do something about that. I was like, Dad, like, my friends smoke pot. They cut themselves. They're depressed. I don't care whether or not they curse. I'm not concerned with that. I'm concerned about their heart. Like, what's going on there? How can I help them there? How can I point them towards God there? And I say that sounding like I was an awesome high school kid, but I wasn't very good at, the do- at doing that, honestly. I just had that basic understanding. 
we'll get to how to cut through that perception. We're actually kind of running out of time, so I need to get going. I'd love to talk about this more, but really great insights. But uh, I think um, what you said was good. Like the um, the uh, you know the perception is uh, hampering us because people don't see us as a community that loves them or or that that really has grace for them. They see us as a community that has all these rules, and these rules are basically meant to enslave you when you're an American. But um, I also like what you said is that we're all equal. It's a road of humility, and that's true. This person and this person need the same thing. They need to be close to God. They need to be pointed towards God. So no matter who you are, pointing people to God is always a good thing. And it's not so much about making sure you fit in the box. It's more about telling people the truth so that they can point towards God themselves. Yeah, as we play that out in our own lives, it can be pretty powerful for people to watch. Absolutely. You see, Paul has been walking a fine line in this passage. He's simultaneously trying to tell everyone to be free from the law and tell them you can't do whatever you want. That's a tricky linguistic problem there. Basically, the the biblical way to to say do whatever you want when you want it is indulge in the flesh. So he warns against that. And we in the past we looked in the past couple of weeks we looked at God's gospel math. You know, anything plus Jesus is not the gospel. Gospel is Jesus. And when we add to that, we lose the gospel. We lose the truth. So Paul is urgently pleading He's urgently pleading to not trade one slave master for another. He says this, It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. What he's saying here is, do not give up your sin and then turn to the law to be enslaved again. Because most of these people were Gentiles. They had never known the law before, and now these people were attempting to fit this on top of them. And it's obviously working because people are starting to follow that, and the whole reason of the letter is to fight against that mentality of, oh, well, I need to become more Jewish in order to be right with God. In verse 3, Paul says that you can try this method if you want. If you want to be a Jew, go ahead. But make sure you follow every single rule. There's one problem with this. It is sure to alienate you. So it's going to alienate you from Christ and his grace. Because nobody but Christ himself was ever able to live up to the law. So when we attempt to do that on our own, we fail. And we're crushed with guilt. And we feel like we're not worthy. But what God has actually done is live that law out completed that law and invites us to live in that through faith. See, we tend to build these boxes, these rules, these bounded sets to affirm ourselves, to tell us whether we're in or out, to tell us if we are doing good or doing uh, bad. But what we end up doing with these boxes is we build coffins. These are meant to protect us 
meant to give, give us life, meant to affirm us, but instead they're going to bring death and despair. Because we can't follow all these rules. And even if we do, it doesn't mean it's actually doing anything to help your situation. It just means you look a certain way. We get our first glimpse into Paul's definition of what freedom is when he says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. We'll talk about that more in a second. In the next section, we see Paul wondering who caused this problem and warning against them. They're going to pay a price for this. Verse 11, um, he highlights the importance of this question over circumcision. So Jews, um, they have this whole system of circumcision to show um, that they're a different group of people. It is a very clear uh, bounded set box line to say we are a different group of people. The rest of the world didn't do this. We do this to show that we are marked, that we're set apart. And God has led... um, Paul to this conclusion that anyone can come to Christ. That you don't need to get surgery performed or follow follow the law because faith expressing through love, expressing itself through love, is is enough. That's ultimately what, what repentance is. And uh, you know, after that, in verse nine, we see Paul echoes Jesus' warning against the Pharisees by using the same exact phrase. It must have been a common thing, or maybe even Paul is quoting Jesus when he says that a little yeast worked through the dough. Um, uh, I'm butchering it. It's a little, a little yeast works the whole batch of dough. Pretty much got it, actually. Um, but we see Paul is reacting the same way. See, yeast is a fungus. You mix it into your dough. You let it sit. It eats the sugars. It creates CO2, which gets you a lighter, fluffier, tastier bread. But back then, they had no method of cultivating yeast. So today, we've got these little packets you pour in, boom, yeast, you're good. Um, back then, it was basically saving old dough, and you put it in your new dough. We do this today with sourdoughs, um, but that was the only way they can do it. So I think what he's trying to say here is don't let the previous batch ruin this batch. Don't bring in old beliefs onto this new system, this new covenant, because it's not going to work out. He's warning them to not let the leftovers of the past corrupt their current relationship with God. Now now Paul gets a little feisty in this next section. He says, um, and I can appreciate this on, on a couple levels, he says, I wish they would emasculate themselves. That is some... That is some biblical trash talk if I've ever heard of it. Um, we think it's funny, and it is on some level. And I don't, but I don't think it's just anger or insult. It probably is both of those things because Paul can be a jerk sometimes. But um, I also think he's genuinely trying to communicate something important. What he's saying is by going the whole, whole way, they wouldn't be able to reproduce. And I think he means that in a spiritual way. So he's, what he's saying here is, Essentially, I wish they would stop reproducing disciples that believe this. That he wants them to be neutered so they cannot continue to spread this kind of thinking. And I can completely get this. Can't you, like, can you imagine like, a bad influence coming over to hang out with somebody you love, start sharing their really bad advice? You get tense. You want to like, fight them and throw them out of your house. So I get, I get why he's, he's coming from there. 
We're going to come back to verses uh, 13 and 14 in a second, but I want to talk about 15 first. 15, it says, if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by, by each other. It's clear that some people are, are falling into this, this rules, this law-based thinking that if you need that to be good with God. And the problem with that is not everybody's living up to that. So it's very clear that this is causing a breakdown in their relationship, not just with God, but with each other. So he's warning them against that. And it's clear to see why that would happen. These Jesus-centered people are concerned only with the continued repentance, not with the, all the outward trappings of what life lo- should look like. And now suddenly people are telling them that they don't measure up. So it's probably quickly led to gossip and judgment from people that you, you thought were friends. And here's where we get to Paul, I think Paul's definition of freedom. He says, you, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Not only is he calling people back into right relationship with each other to fix those problems, but he's flat out saying that freedom is not loving yourself. It's not in doing what you want when you want. He's saying freedom is following God. And how do we do that? By following the one commandment that fulfills the entire law. And if you do this, if you live out this in faith, you do not need to worry about the law because it's fulfilled already by God and by you in this action. And the action is to love your neighbor as yourself. Love. That is freedom. The ability to love people rather than worry about your performance. Or ability to love people rather than worry about how you can serve yourself. That is freedom. And we're freed from both performance and our own desires by Jesus. And I think that's a beautiful thing, that, that freedom is love. <clears throat> that freedom isn't just for the benefit of ourselves, but for the benefit of the other. It's the bene- for the benefit of everyone we encounter. So we have all placed something on, on, on our, the thrones in our life. We've created idols in our life. And basically, we just are enslaved to something. What is the Holy Spirit asking you to give up this morning. I'm confident that something's bubbled up to, to you while we've been talking about it. What are you thinking that you need to repent of? And the beautiful thing is, like whether you've done this, the, this is the first time you're ever thinking about it, or the billionth, this is still good for all of us to do. I'm going to get better with my Facebook and the other implications that are surrounding that. The, the it's not just Facebook. There's, there's something else behind that. It is, I can't be bored. Because if I'm bored, I will start to worry. I will start thinking about other things. So somewhere in there, there is fear um, that is enthroned in my life. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be working on that, just as I have been throughout um, this DNA process. And if you've never done DNA, uh, DNA groups where you meet intentionally with people, over a consistent um, number of weeks, and you, you go through the gospel and the implications it has on your life and the idols in your life, it is a wonderful tool. I highly recommend it. Um, 
I thought I was a good guy, and then I did DNA, and I learned I had so much further further to go, uh, which is good because it means I can be more free. But yeah, whether whether this is your first time or your billionth time, we all need freedom. We all need to repent. We all need to turn back to God. But it's it's for freedom that you have been freed. See, Christ has freed us in a number of different ways. He's done this with his life as he walked out um, his ministry. Uh, He fulfilled the law. He healed people. He uh, raised people from the dead. He freed people from from demonic oppression. That's bondage. Um, He uh, ripped down idols in people's lives by exposing their hearts. Jesus freed us in his death by taking our sin and satisfying God's wrath as our substitute. And he freed us in his resurrection by killing our greatest enemy, death once and for all. We no longer have to fear it or live under its tyranny. So I'm going to charge you with the same thing that uh, Paul is charging them in this passage. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge in in the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly the entire love is fulfilled in keeping this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. God, we thank you for um, what you do in our lives, how you freed us. And we pray for that this morning, Lord. Bring your freedom, freedom to us now. Free us from these idols, from our flesh, from the law. Whatever it is that we put in front of you, Remove that, Lord. Help us to step into that freedom and love one another like you are calling us to do.